I'm going to give you a talk. We're going to talk about overdiagnosis, explain how it affects me, how it might affect you, and how you might think a bit differently about it. Okay, well, when I first started thinking about this problem, um, I was in New York, actually, and that's 6th Avenue going down New York, and I often thought the word, this signpost here, caution, was there because of the traffic. But actually, as I progressed on and it became a little bit darker, I realised it was about this van that was on the side of the road, which was the Brain Tumour Foundation, where you could have your CT scan of your brain on 6th Avenue for about $700 that evening. So this idea that the road to early detection. And so this, this presence of the idea, you'll be aware of CT scanning being around you and areas, and then as I went through, you realise this sort of stuff's everywhere. In the newspapers, 120-pound test to spot genetic heart failure. So you can have a test like that today. Everybody in this room can have one. And when I got home, I realised you get to a certain age, some of you are not there yet, and people start sending you letters through the post. And on them letters are messages, an urgent message about your eye examination. And basically, this is Specsavers telling me it's now over two years since your last eye examination. And as we mentioned in our previous letter, you were due to have your eye test on 29th of August 2014. And now it's the 15th of February 2016. I'm a bad person. Now, just to say, I'm over 40 and I have a family history of glaucoma. Anybody else in that situation in the room? Oh, a couple of people. All right. So the good thing is you get free eye tests, don't you? So if you want to get free eye tests and you're over 40, tell them you've got a family history of glaucoma and they'll <laughs> give you a free eye test. There's, there's a secret. The second issue, though, then, is how often do you get a free eye test? Whenever I feel like it. Every year. So the NHS pays for people like me and our friends here to go for an eye examination every year. However, I'm the professor of EBM and I haven't been for nearly two years. And so we've got differences of opinion every year, whenever I feel like it. So I thought, well, you know, I'd look up the evidence before I go. How can that help me? And actually, there's a systematic review and economic evaluation of the evidence for glaucoma screening. And when you do that, you see that this often phenomenon of actually there doesn't seem to be much evidence. There are only two randomised control trials. <coughs> and them two ra randomised trials have to do two important steps. They have to extrapolate and they have to make assumptions. Whenever anybody's doing that, I often think they must be making it up at that point. But you can see there, without treatment, mean time to blindness in at least one eye was 23 years compared to 35 years with treatment. That's assumption-based. But immediately that tells you whenever you get a diagnosis, you're going to have to take somewhere about 25, 30 years of treatment to realise the benefit, and you might not know. But you are committing yourself. one point, somebody's going to diagnose you with raised intracranial pressure in your eye, intraocular pressure, and you need to take 25 years of treatment. So that's the first fault process. Okay? But it appears not to be cost-effective. Okay? And the screening interval seems to be every 10 years to approach cost-effectiveness. That's different from the benefit, but that's how much we would screen you to say we generate a, a genuine benefit. And then I go to, obviously, well, look, let's see the US Preventive Task Force. They do guidelines, and they do a rigorous job, and they obviously do the systematic reviews again, look at the evidence, and come to a conclusion. And this was their conclusion. 
Um, now, you, we've got two people in here. How does that really help you make a decision, do you think? Do you think that makes you more likely or less likely to screen yourself? <coughs> okay? Not very helpful, is it? So you have this discussion. And so I went back to NHS choices. NHS choices are our, uh, our, our evidence-based, tell us how to communicate to the public, and it tells us it's important to have regular eye tests so eye problems such as glaucoma can be diagnosed and treated as early as possible. If you have glaucoma, it can take a long time before you realise you have a problem. You should have an eye test at least every two years or more frequently if advised by your optometrist. Well, it's obvious your optometrists, they make money out of it, they're going to tell you more frequently. They'd like to do it every day if possible, wouldn't they, if you were at Specsavers? <laughs> but how is that compatible with that? Isn't that what's going on? This is the NHS in complete opposite to that information. We don't know what we're doing. Here, do it every two years. So, at that point, I'm like feeling totally confused. What do we do now? Well, I'll go and look at the evidence. What does the test look like? And here's a test which have different ranges of sensitivity and specificity. So this is the worst case scenario if I have the test. Okay, so if I take a thousand pipe people like me, my prevalence of disease with a family history is about 5%. That means 50 people will have the disease, 950 will not. Everybody follow that? Happy with that? Okay. The test ranges from 10% to 90% sensitivity and specificity of 81 to 90%. So if you take the worst case scenario of a sensitivity of 10%, everybody who's doing the MSC knows what that means now. I'm not going to test you, I might over a drink. But what it means is 10% of the people with the disease will test positive. And if you take the specificity of 81, that means of the 950 who don't have the disease, 181 will test positive. You add all the numbers together and you end up with this. Only 5 of 186 will actually have the disease if you have a positive test. That's the worst case scenario. So about 3% if I get a positive test. But let's take the best case scenario of the systematic review evidence. The best case scenario is a sensitivity of 90% and a specificity of 99%. We're now in a really good test. Most people would go, wow, that's a super test. Sensitivity 90% and very high specificity. You get the same numbers here, happy with that. Your sensitivity in 90 says 45 out of 50. Yeah, so of the 50 people with disease, 90% of them will test positive, about 45. And of the 950 without the disease, 99% specificity, 95% will test positive. That means you end up with about a 30% chance of having the disease if you have a positive test on a glaucoma screening as of tomorrow, about one in three. So, um, I find that, I understand the evidence, but it still doesn't help me very much. Because now I'm stuck in a land thinking, well, the US Presentative Task Force says we're not quite sure whether to screen or not. NHS choices say do it every two years or less. The evidence is extrapolated. There are assumptions, and it's only two randomised trials. And actually, there's only one in three chance if I have a positive test that I'll actually have the disease. I actually have. And so it leaves me in a position of uncertainty. I still don't know what to do. Now that's interesting, and I've looked at all the evidence. And so I find this as a recurring theme whenever I go and look at types of evidence. And so often you get this, this scenario where somebody says, well, ah, but good news, all I have to do is put eye prescribed eye drops in. Phew, 
I got diagnosed. So you'll always get a case where somebody goes, yes, but without testing and screening, I wouldn't have been picked up. Okay? The problem with that is the few is I've got to put eye drops in my eyes now for 25 to 30 years, and I don't really know whether it's going to make any difference. Now, it's an important issue. The second issue is when we label people with a disease, I can go back to show you a particular study going back now to the 1978 in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is David Sackett and Brian Haynes looked at what happens if you go to hypertension, di diagnose hypertension in the workplace. If you go into the workplace, you're going to get people like you and they say, some of you have hypertension, some of you don't, and some of you never knew that. Well, in fact, one of the biggest issues that, about this paper is that actually what it showed is that labelling resulted in increased absenteeism from work. So there's something we do, and it was quite significant, that actually the amount of it was in previously unaware subjects. Uh, before screening, they take about 2.7 days. After screening, they take about 8.4 days off, off work. That's huge implications, doesn't it, for how we think about when we give people a label. It's not just you're going to say, well, you have a diagnosis and here's some treatment, now go away and get on with it. Actually, we may increase their anxiety. We may increase their health-seeking behaviour. We certainly may increase their ability to take time off work because suddenly you think you might be an ill person. So what does it mean if you're prepared to have a label? So if you go back to the glaucoma, should I have a label or not? What are the other connotations? What do I need to know about in terms of the quality of my life, who I am, what effect it might have on me before I make the decision? I think this is really important stuff. We don't know the answer. Okay, so that's one example for myself. Here's a second example. Uh, Dear Mr. Hennigan, I am pleased to invite you to a health screening clinic we are holding at the Kassam Stadium on Thursday the 25th of February. Why have I been invited? When we organise a clinic, we write to a small number of people, see I'm very special, in your area for whom appointments are available. This is a simpler system that keeps our administration costs low, <coughs> meaning we can offer extensive health screening at a fee that is exceptional value to me. Aren't I lucky? Well, that fee is £129. And the good news is, is if I went to Buper, it would be £424. So I'm being sold a message. And I've asked somebody, I asked Ruth here, who's a centre manager, I talked to her, I said, look, anybody here over 40? And Ruth's one of them people. And she was getting these letters as well, GP's letters, health screening letters. So once you hit about 40, you start to get invited to health screening. Okay? And in that, you have to make a choice, do I go? And in this message, it talks about measurements such as age, sex, family history, height, weight, and blood pressure. Simple blood test to measure, and following the check, you will receive personal advice about what you can do to stay healthy. That's what we're doing now in healthcare. We send out, this is from a GP practice, it's not from private firms. And then you get information like this, questions you may have. What happens at the check? And when you read the information, it's so basic, it doesn't really help you in any way. Make an informed choice. Doesn't talk about the test, what the accuracy is. Doesn't talk about the important effects it may have on you in terms of the benefits and the harms. It just has pretty bound statements. Some people with raised blood pressure will have their kidneys checked through a blood test. That's what they do. Treatment or medication may be prescribed to help you maintain your health. 
Is that really informing you? Is that informed choice about the benefits and harms? So, health checks. We actually have just done uh, Eco Onokpaya, who's not here, has done an evidence synthesis with us for the WHO to look at health checks, cardiovascular risk screening, and that helps us prioritise where all the evidence is. And here's one of the first bits of evidence about helping you make a decision about should you have a health check. And this is the Cochrane Systematic Review, and it's done by Lasse Krogsball, and it came out a couple of years ago. Okay? And what does it show? This is what it showed again. It's one of the trials about health checks. Did not find that health checks had an effect on hospital admissions, disability, worry, the number of referrals to special, additional visits to doctors or absence from work. And they were poorly studied, all the important ones. So, that doesn't work. So I looked at this review. Here's another review that we found within the message. And this one is looking at opportunity, systematic versus opportunistic risk assessment. Systematic is, is we systematically call you in versus you're in my practice and I opportunistically say, I'll measure your blood pressure. Or would you like to talk to me about this today? I could look at X. Okay? Another Cochrane review. Okay? So, again, you'd expect to see these important effects like all-cause mortality. If you're going to invest in health checks, you would want to see some effect on all-cause mortality. No difference. Cardiovascular mortality, that's what you're hoping to see. No effect. Has no effect on these outcomes. All right? You can even drill down into this one. is one of the only population-based studies where they've done it actually in primary care. This was published in 2014 in the BMJ, June 2014. Effective screening and lifestyle counselling on incidence of ischemic heart disease in a general population into 99 randomised trial done in Denmark. So this is not just screening. This is screening and giving you some extra lifestyle counselling. Okay? Look at what they did, though. I find this quite interesting. Invited for screening, risk assessment and lifestyle counselling up to four times over a five-year period. So it's not just once. It's four times over five years. It's, you then have an, uh, your tailored lifestyle counselling at all visits. And those at highest risk of IHD have six further sessions of group-based lifestyle counselling. So now we're really trying to make the intervention work, aren't we? We are definitely making sure, compared to doing nothing, you are going to have some effect. Yeah, and if there were any changes, final counselling session, you were referred to your GP for medical treatment if relevant. The control group was not invited for screening. Okay, that's pretty intensive, isn't it? And look what happened. So even if you go to that intensity level, notice a difference seen between the intervention and control groups in terms of ischemic heart disease, even if you work really hard with people. In the combined endpoint, total mortality, no difference, and you can see the conclusion is a community-based, individually tailored intervention program with screening has no effect. We, though, have rolled out a health screening check program in the UK. And I can come back to that at the end. There are interesting issues why this might never work and what are the connotations and what are the issues. But at the moment, I am ignoring my health check screen. Okay? I'm quite happy to not know where I'm at, what's going on. I do not know my cholesterol level at the moment, and I'm quite happy not to know it. Okay. So there's a second one. Here's a third one, okay? I was talking Jeff at the back about this. This is, I was feeling a bit unwell. 
You know when you get the cold and flu and you're feeling a bit miserable? Is it? That's everybody's nodding. You can feel like that. You feel a bit sort of like under the weather. I thought while I'm doing that, I'm going to do my PHQ-9 score, which is use of the PHQ-9 to make a tentative depression diagnosis. So these are the PHQ-9 scores. So I thought, well, I'll do my score. Little interest or pleasure in doing things. Well, actually, I was about one for that, several days. I was also trouble falling asleep, staying asleep or sleeping too much. In fact, I gave myself a free for all them. It depended. I was feeling pretty grotty. I couldn't really sleep. And then sometimes in the day, I felt like sleeping all the time. When I came to my appetite, uh, I was feeling tired of having little energy. I had a poor appetite and I wasn't all overeating and I was overeating at some points as well. You know that feeling when you did feel a bit sick, but then when you feel all right, you overeat. That happens to me on occasion. And I also had trouble concentrating on things such as reading the newspaper or watching TV. And so I ended up with a score of nine. And my nine gave me minimal symptoms, support, educate to call if worth returning one month, treatment recommendation. If I'd have scored one more point, I could have had a diagnosis of minor depression at that moment in time. And we've started to use all of these scores a significant amount of time because they've come out of research and somehow we've translated them into clinical practice without even thinking of what's the connotation of what is it we're doing. And this is a really interesting issue because when you look at it, you can start to look at depression and look at the validity of the diagnosis. And what you notice is Identification of depression is strongly associated with increased familiarity with the patient. To the point that people who don't have depression but are labelled as depressed, false positive, versus people who do have depression but are not labelled, false negative, the only thing that starts to distinguish them is they're identical in terms of their clinician and their clinical characteristics is how many times you turn up. So what happens if you think about it in depression when we've seen huge increases is if you go and see your GP quite a few times, at some point he's going to go, well, I think you're depressed, have a treatment, have some medication. Because it's really easy to do that. And so that has connotations for us as GPs to really think about why is this person here? Has their symptoms changed in any way? Are they really depressed? Now, this is really interesting. When you start to look at it, you look at the evidence. Now, I've looked at the evidence here, and I've kept looking for five or six years for the evidence in primary care to evolve. And what I've noticed is, actually, this is published in 2009. There were only 14 studies, and only 2,000 people globally involved in randomised trials for antidepressants in the community in primary care. That just seems outrageous to me. Not least, we're of short duration, typically six to eight weeks. There is very limited evidence beyond eight weeks of what to do. This is in an area when you're marketing the product, you want to show some effect and get it out there quick. Now, this was updated again in 2014. Look what they said then. Actually, a number of studies with observation periods of longer than 12 weeks. Comparative analysis of long-term effects was not possible. Okay, so that makes me concerned about the use of antidepressants in primary care. There's a small effect... And that small effect is over six to eight weeks, and beyond about 12 weeks is very little to inform what to do. Yet most people I see in most guidelines say you should give it at least six months treatment. 
And these treatments are really interesting. So here's some more interesting that I've always noticed about the way we prescribe, the way we medicate. This is FDA data. This is the age-specific odd ratio for suicidal ideation and behavior. You can see below 18 on, on antidepressants. The odds ratio is about 2. 18 to 24, it's about 1.5. And then it starts to decrease. Happy with that? Yeah. So you would look at that and think, well, okay. Anybody who's young, under the age of 25, I will be more vigilant about using these treatments. Yeah? You'll particularly know some of you about paroxetine. That was a, a particular issue in adolescence. Yeah. I get these sorts of pieces, which I just cannot fathom what's going on. This is the, uh, in, published in 2016, so only just this last month. There's been a rise in prescribing of antidepressants in children of 50% in the last seven, eight years. 20% have taken tricyclics despite guidance. 2,000 are nice guidance against the use of these agents in children and young people. So we're using treatments more and more that we're being told not to use. And we're using them in the age group where we're having warnings about not using them. And this is what we start to see. Double in a decade, huge rises of antidepressants. This one here is citalopram. Quadrupled over time, doubled over time. And then you look at the prescribing around the UK of antidepressants. <coughs> now at the back there, just look, this is, the, the grey bits is, this is per thousand people in the grey bit, so Oxford's just in there, is about 70 to 141 items per thousand people. Yeah. The blue bits are not the Tory party, the blue bits are 141 to 185. Yellow bits are next up, but when you get to the red, you're talking 225 to 331. You're talking one in five people are on an antidepressant. Yeah? Yeah, but they are in Norfolk. <laughs> <laughs> you think there's something particular about Norfolk, dear? Well, it's interesting. I put these. You get the lowest. These are the same IMD for deprivations. You can look at areas like that and show, look, here's Brent. That's actually, it's not, not deprivation. This is the data today from Open Prescribing, which we do in the EBM Data Lab. 39.5 per thousand versus over here, this is 176 per thousand. It's about fourfold variation. Oxford's right there in the middle. You can explain some of this variation, probably by age, subgroups. But boy, can you explain all of that? Can you explain the difference between that and that? It's really interesting. But what's happening is one in seven people is on an antidepressant in this country right now. Um, that's staggering in the 21st century. That suggests we've got a crisis in mental health that despite all of our growth, everything we're doing, we are becoming sadder and worse off or there's some structurally going wrong in how we use medications, how we diagnose people. In fact, the prescribing is slightly higher than the rates of diagnosis. Whether that's because there are some factors, but actually we're even giving treatments to people who we don't think are depressed. Um, and I can see it. Um, I, I get a lot of this. As a GP, I get a lot of students who come out and they'll go into the workforce and they'll be 21, 22, and they'll turn up at my practice and they go, I'm really tired. Can't get up in the morning. And I'm a bit fed up with the world. And I'm like, yeah, that's what the real world's like, isn't it? <laughs> but you can be careful. If you come and do that a couple of times, I've told you, you're going to end up on an antidepressant at some point soon. 
And the issue is when you get on them, is you can't get off them. And this is Peter Gosher's position, who writes a lot about this, is that the discontinuation symptoms are so bad that it's very hard to get off them. So you end up staying on them. So we have this epidemic where it continues in time, where you'd expect if they were working, that at some point people would actually be coming off these drugs. So although they may be coming on it, you'd get better, then you'd come off, wouldn't you? When you feel a bit better, you come down. That's what we do a lot in medications, unless it's an irreversible, that actually you're just on a continuum of depression and we can't do anything about it unless you're, unless you're on the drugs. Okay, so that's antidepression. We've done, we've done glaucoma, we've done health screening, and I've talked to you about antidepressants. Now we're going to just look a little bit at cancer. Um, what's interesting about the cancer is the adverts, is how emotive they are. This little kit saves lives from bowel cancer. The cervical screening test, put it on your list. Look here, then look at the picture. There, my mum missed a smear test, now I miss my mum. It's really getting to your heartstrings, isn't it? Why you should have your test. That's what we have to rely on. We're marketing at you to have your test. And I see this. If you start to become aware, you'll notice these adverts are everywhere in your life. They're all over the place. And you get these ones. Text TEST to 8802. Somebody could have a go if they want. It'll cost you 8 to 12p. Subsequent texts are charged <coughs> at the standard network rate, and somebody's probably making some money somewhere. But then you get things like this. I got this. This was on the London Underground. At first I thought it was some TV that I could buy at £23 for a plasma screen. And so when I went and looked up at this, I nearly died because I nearly fell on the track at this point. <laughs> because I couldn't read it and it said, the Myriad test is the first over-the-counter blood test that allows you to screen yourself and quickly and discreetly for a range of 14 different health conditions. So you can do that now. You can go and screen yourself. You can pick all these tests. You can have a CT scan. You can go and see your doctor and you'll definitely get antidepressants. By the time you're 40, you can have a health check. But this is what seemingly is happening. This is data from Cancer Research UK. While we're increasing the incidence of thyroid cancer per 100,000 people, this is what's happening to mortality. Okay? It's flatlining. Very little effect. So we're diagnosing more conditions. And this is what the term overdiagnosis is referred to. Now, this is how they see it. The diagnosis of conditions that will never cause symptoms or harm during the patient's lifetime. The consequences are unnecessary anxiety, harms from excessive treatment and increased healthcare costs, risks that those who don't need treatment are prioritised over those who do. And this is the sort of diagrams that you get seen a lot. And Jason here will know this diagram very well in the cancer and the stats people. You get diagnosed with an abnormal cell. We don't know whether that's going to be a fast-growing cancer, whether it's going to be a slow one that will get you to this at which line. This is where it causes symptoms. This is where you die. Or is it very slow, so you'll die of something else in your lifetime? Or actually, is it just going to be non-progressive? Or actually, is it going to be regressive over time and you'll return to normal? That can happen in breast cancer, in cervical cancer, in all these areas where you make a diagnosis, you have abnormal cells. We know very little about this right now. And so this is what it looks like for breast cancer. The incidence has been going up and the mortality has been coming down. People would like to say that screening is introduced. This is the effects that we see for screening. 
that this is what they like to say. For every 10,000 women screened, 43 deaths from breast cancer would be prevented and 129 cases of breast cancer would be overdiagnosed. So for about every one where we find a case, three, three cases of overdiagnosed are detected. Somebody that something wouldn't happen to. But that's assuming that all of this mortality is through screening. It's not, it's not actually based on treatment effects because treatment's getting better. So we don't really know about what's really happening with breast cancer screening, the effects. Most of the trials are 40 years old. And I actually did this when I went to um, the WHO. Believe it or not, the WHO figured in all the world problems that actually one of the priorities was to produce a guideline on breast cancer screening because there are only two camps. There are either people who believe it's the best thing to do since sliced bread or there's people who think you should never do breast screening. And in the middle, when I looked at the evidence, all I could see was huge amounts of uncertainty. Evidence that was 40 years old, where the mortality reductions were based on whether you had a mastectomy or not, which is what we don't even do anymore. So the treatment's changed, and the data's very old. So I was sat there saying, wow, this is a real mess. How do we make a sense of this? Where do we go next? Okay. And this is the sort of things you see a lot of, don't you? Our survival rates lags years behind those in Europe. In fact, the easiest way to improve survival rates is to just diagnose something earlier, but it, I mean, it's not the same as improving overall mortality. Because if you count it in five-year survival, you want to diagnose things much <coughs> earlier, and you can improve that five-year survival really quickly. And that's when you hear about socialist medicine in America, what they're doing is, for instance, they diagnose prostate cancer earlier, a five-year survival is better, but the overall mortality is no different. People die at the same age from prostate cancer in the UK and in the US. And that's important to know. And this is what's happening now. We are referring more patients with low-risk cancer symptoms under new nice guidance. So, for instance, if you have a cough, how many people here have had a cough that's gone on for three weeks? Okay. Under nice guidance, you should have all been referred for a chest x-ray. Okay? Because that's what nice is starting to tell us. And in that position, it's saying what's happened in the last five years is the number of x-rays in Oxford have doubled. And Jack's just walked in the room and he knows that because that's what his DPhil's about. And somehow we're going, who's accounting for all this extra work? Why is it people are not paying attention to when we do things like this, you massively increase the amount of work in the NHS. And everybody is now telling us, despite all the extra investment, the NHS is in more crisis than it's ever been. Um, and that's interesting. And um, before I came here, I was having a discussion with Jeff at the back about this talk. And in 1997, 20 years ago, uh, they were putting 37 billion into the health service, and I worked with Jeff directly in the NHS. 20 years later, we now spend 120 billion, and we have the same structural problems that we had 20 years. In some ways, they're even worse. Now, why is that occurring if we put all that extra investment in? That's a huge amount of money, isn't it? We've doubled the number of doctors in that time. We train twice as many doctors now than we did then. And what's happened? You can do this, and there's Dylan at the back, you can do this all the time. You can go and get yourself tested all the time. 
You can be advertised to, you can be marketed to, you can be at the airport and you can do your blood pressure from the fly healthy seat and the machine. And what does all that mean? Here's where I'm at. When you have things like this, you have to think about, do you want to know, would you be happy to live with the disease or not? Would you be happy to be live with the risk or not? Does it ultimately help you to know whether you've got a high risk or not? Are you the sort of person that can tolerate that? Or will it make you take more time off work? Do you want to know? Do we want to know? We haven't had that debate. And so when I do things like that, I often go back in time and think, well, somebody must have said something sensible about this in the past. And in going back, this is the first thing. I think most information relates to tested patients. It assumes you've already had the test. To get you to screening, you have to be, most information is emotive, relying on scare tactics. And you, most individuals, are not equipped to decide whether to take tests or not. Is that fair comment? You might be once you've had the test, but beforehand, I'm showing you all the illustrations where I'm in a position where I'm going, I'm not quite sure about this. And so I look back at the World Health Organization in 1971, the screening criterion, there's one thing that sticks out to me. Screening must lead to an improvement in end results, defined in terms of mortality, physical, social and emotional function, pain and satisfaction, among those in whom early diagnosis is achieved or in the other members of the community. If I applied that definition to health screening, would I have achieved that? Ask yourself then, if we haven't achieved that, why have we rolled it out on a national basis for everybody to make it available? Have I achieved that for depression? Am I sure about that when it comes to the glaucoma? And there are many instances where I don't think we are in that position. So this is where I am with the overdiagnosis. There's too much demand, too much screening, too much testing, too much treatment, and therefore overdiagnosis is really just too much healthcare. And that's where we are today. Thank you very much.